Before we get to our fantastic interview for this episode, a quick announcement that we are bringing back online the TMK Book Club. Starting this week in the premium feed over at Patreon, uh, we will be going through Mute Compulsion, a Marxist theory of the economic power of capital by Soren Mao out from Verso Books. Uh, so every other week, you know, we or so we will be going through chapter by chapter this absolutely fantastic book, one of the clearest, most analytical, erudite pieces of theory that I've read in such a long time. Uh, it is, it is a, a, just laying out the foundations of understanding power, value, and capital. Uh, in, in a way that I haven't come across really ever before, um, but certainly not in a long time. And, and it's, you know, going back to it doesn't just feel like going back to the basics. It feels like going to the fundamentals and deriving an even deeper understanding of things I think about and talk about all the time in my work on this podcast. And yet going through Sora Mao's book, I just feel like it's resonating in even deeper uh, ways and richer ways than it ever has before. And so, you know, going through the book, talking about it with Ed and Jeremy, we were just like, let's let's actually go through this in depth. Let's discuss it. Let's uh, do this with our listeners. And so we are finally restarting the TMK Book Club for this occasion. Um, again, uh, this this week in the premium episode, we will start it off with the preface or foreword by Michael Heinrich and the introduction chapter. And then every other week or so, we'll be going through it chapter by chapter, really having in-depth discussions, bringing in the technological analysis, because again, this is not a book about technology. It's a book about economic power, about capitalism, um, but all of the, the kind of things, the theories, the tools that we use to analyze technology on the show and in our work, this book is providing that arsenal, that toolbox that we need. And so, uh, you know, we'll be going through doing doing some theory reading, not so you don't have to, but doing it so you can do it with us, right? I, I hope you pick up the book. I hope you go through the book with us um, and have discussions about it with us. Uh, because again, I, I think this is, this is a, a a really, really fantastic book. I'm very excited to read it again. Very excited to read it with Ed and Jeremy and with all of you. So we'll we'll see you again in the premium episode this week for um, TMK Book Club on Mute Compulsion by Soren Mao out by Verso Books. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 274 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And I am very excited to be joined by a duo 
of excellent guests who have just written an equally excellent book. Uh, Katie Wells and Kafoy Ato are here to talk about disrupting DC, the rise of Uber and the fall fall of the city. Uh, you know, uh, one a topic that is very much near and dear to our heart: the gig economy, um, urban politics, the political economy of technology, all of that stuff. Um, you know, in the in the for for subscribers of the show, you'll know in the last premium episode we were talking about Uber for the first time in a very long time because they have themselves for the first time ever posted an operating profit, uh, or, or so they are claiming after over thirty one billion dollars of losses uh, since. 2014. So now is the is a is a better time than ever before to bring Uber back into our minds um, and, and talk about them. And Katie Kafoy, uh, no no one better to do so. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. This is great. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well. For just some broader context here, I mean, I do think Uber is it's interesting. Like you know, th- when we started TMK, God, three years ago now, you know, we we were talking a ton about the gig economy. I feel like Ed and I were talking about Uber and Lyft or Deliveroo or whatever, like constantly. You know, what's going on with them? Giving some analysis of them and stuff like that. And then the, it just kind of fell off. But it's not that these companies went away. I just think like other things kind of took over in our minds, especially now with artificial intelligence. You know, the the last year and a half, two years was all about Web3. So it's crypto and blockchain and all that. You know, we, we, we are always enthralled to the hype cycle no matter even even when we want to uh, call bullshit on it and push against it. But these companies have not gone away. I mean, the news of Uber finally posting a profit <laughs> after 15 years of existence is proof that like they haven't only not gone away, they are still very dominant and they are still very in control and they are many of the while many of them have fallen, you know, especially the kind of like uh, last minute delivery, ultra fast uh, grocery store at where you get get it within an hour, ten minutes of 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 of, of posting. Those those companies have largely gone out the have largely collapsed. But they're like companies like Uber, Airbnb. You know, they're still very much around. Um, and so I don't know. I, I I what what do you think is kind of maybe you could give us a little bit of context here since. You two, along with your co-author of Disrupting DC, Declan Colin, have maybe more than most people been closely following Uber um, empirically as like a research project for 10 years now or so, right? So you kind of have this long durée view that I think uh, uh, even most people who study this topic don't have e- anywhere near as long of a, a kind of view of it as, as you two. So could you maybe help set the scene a little bit about like what's the kind of modern contemporary context of these platforms of these companies kind of what, what, where are they at right now? You know? Well, let, let me take the trajectory piece of the, the question. Cause I think we, I think you're right to, to, to say that, you know, we, there have been hype cycles or there have been moments of hype, but then mo- moments of, you know, silence or quietude and then moments of hype again. So w- when we began the research, I think in 2016, 2015, we had actually, we were, we were actually like 
off the hype cycle. <laughs> you know, Uber arrived in, in DC around 2011, 2012, and there was tons of kind of, uh, attention at the time for, for reasons that we can talk about associated with the legality. Um, and then there was a moment of, okay, it's, it's here. We're dealing with it. Then they launched Uber X and, you know, all these kind of, you know, different, uh, side projects, um, you know, Uber, the food delivery. And so, you know, their attention was drawn then again. And when we, when we came in 2000, 16, there was, you know, a lot of the debates, um, you know, Uber's kind of, uh, public reputation, um, you know, was, uh, was, was, our, you know, beginning to decline a bit. Um, and then especially, you know, following the whole, um, um, delete Uber campaign associated with the kind of, um, Donald Trump's first, uh, year in, in office. And so, so now, you know, Uber is back in the news. <laughs> it, it's still here, hasn't gone away. But, um, I think the, the questions we ask in the book, you know, we, we try to ask questions that we think are going to be relevant, <laughs> um, after, you know, that, that go beyond the hype cycle. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think we were cognizant as we were writing it, like, okay, this, because of the glacial pace of publishing, you know, what we're writing about now might not be, you know, it might not be live, you know, a year and a half when it finally comes out. And so I think we're interested in kind of the bigger questions, which have to do with how Uber intervenes in the, the politics. And I guess I'd have to think more about what this new revelation or this new finding and final pro profitability will mean in, in that context. But um, that's a first attempt at that, uh, complex question, Katie. Uh, no, I would just jump in to say that one thing we are watching with sort of future research is what's going on with cloud kitchens. As much as Uber and Uber Eats and all these things are in the backdrop and we can say, okay, instant delivery in some ways is dying out. We still see companies like GoPuff that are acquiring leases at a, you know, an intense rate as well as cloud kitchens is actively, this is Travis Kalanick's um, side project that he's building with Bradley Tusk right, the former political fixer, right, they are quietly, you know, trying to get legislation passed in Georgia, Chicago, they've been involved in DC battles. So I think some of those same players are still involved, even if it's not the same companies. Yeah, one, one thing I really also like about the your y'all's work over the years, and especially I think in this book is, you know, of course, there are the standard set of questions we all have about Uber and these app-based celebrity platforms, what are they doing to people as they move around in cities? How are they, you know, getting rid of laws or pre-existing industries or the ways in which people connect to each other? But I think also one thing I really enjoyed about this book is how you kind of talk about the ways in which they are changing both people's people's relationship to a city, you know, materially and infrastructurally, but also ideologically. Like what are, what do people want to expect from a city? What do politicians think they can do in cities? What do other companies think that they're able to do in cities? What are the sort of expectations of politics, of organizing, of corporate interactions of private sector, you know, presence in a city? Could we, you know, talk a bit about, you know, your, your research there, your interest in that, that led you, I guess, to pursue that avenue a bit more, because I feel like a lot of commentary that we tend to see on Uber and on these app 
based labor platforms. It does talk about how they affect, you know, like Yovina's work. We'll talk a bit about how they affect labor conditions, how they're trying to make a new racial wage code, how they're trying to restructure labor conditions to make room for profits that might have been illegal. We have people's work who talks about also the the reality of the labor conditions on the ground, but it feels like this fills a a space as much needed to talk about like, okay, like what are also the other things they're doing to how people just think about how they should be in a city, how they should move through a city, how, how things should be built or executed inside of cities. Oh yeah. Thank you. That was beautiful. I mean, that's what we wanted to do and we did not set out to do that. Right. Which was that on some level we wanted to know, are these good jobs? And then once we realized there were some concerns about them, we wanted to know what, why are people doing this right? And it wasn't just the workers. It was also why are policymakers in bed with these companies? And it was that sort of depressing, you know, finding of like these very low expectations that persist and how people imagine that they can live with strangers on contested land, right? Which is what living in a city is. We live with strangers on contested land with shared uses and we try to figure out how to do it. And it feels like Uber is taking advantage of the cracks in sort of the social network or any kind of like the idea that we could build something wonderful or decent together, right? It's where like last, this week, um, Beyonce was here and there was a storm that delayed her concert. And what did she do to help people get home? Well, she paid $100,000 to extend the Metro's hours for 30 minutes. Like that's a gesture on one hand, right? We can be like, that is a beautiful gesture toward public infrastructure. Yeah. On the other hand, like, fuck, like, that's what the city should be like. Uh, Queen Beat, like, they shouldn't be doing it. Like, they <laughs> should be doing that, right? Like, um, but that's what it feels like on a very, well, anyway. Well, I'm glad she didn't. I, I'm glad she didn't pay for people's Uber rides. That was I, when, you're, yeah. when you're talking. I was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> yes, that's exactly. I feel myself clench up anticipating. I that. was like, "Beyonce, no!" <laughs> um, Imagine if she did that. That would be the singular reason why Uber is in the in the black for the first time. I think it's just advertising, Jeremy. Yeah. I don't know yet, but I'm I'm still yeah. dubious. I need who? Where's Hubert Horan to come in and show us? That? We were yeah, talking I about know. that I'm- in the last episode <laughs> when we were saying that they've they've posted profit because obviously it's like all those profits are probably EBITDA profits, right? They're like before interest, taxation, depreciation, and amortization. So. Well, that's the thing. Part of the screaming was from. They're saying, oh, this is gap profit, you know, but then, of course, raising the question is like Hubert always does, like, when we look at the gap, how much is also still being obscured? Because even when they do generally accepted accounting principles, they're very slippery with the language, right? Uh, go- just going back to the, the original question, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think it's a, a great, great point, which is, you know, irrespective of the pr- question of profitability, there's all this whole world of um, people's experience in cities that we're kind of interested in. And I think, you know, Katie is, you know, is right that like, that's not what we originally were interested in. We, we were interested in the labor question. And I think if, you know, I think I'm speaking for all three of us, you know, we, we were deeply critical and skeptical of Uber and in many ways looking for <laughs> some evidence and support for that that skepticism but i think talking to people both people who use uber as 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 consumers um you know who 
who use it to get across town, but then also talking to policymakers, we kept com- coming confronting this kind of question of, oh, but 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 people like it, <laughs> but people but, but but people think but people don't have other options or people people are are using Uber for real reasons, um, you know, either because they um, are underemployed or you know this is they've just come to the country and this is pretty easy to get a job in um or that you know uh, they can't get home from a concert you know so i i i think talking to people um on the ground forces forced us in this direction of looking at the kind of material conditions that gave rise to uber and then um you know, we're shaping how people think about what is possible in, in, you know, in cities. Yeah. And I think the book does this really, really well because it is very much, it is a case study of Washington, DC. You know, as much as it is a case study of Uber, it is a case study of Washington, DC and the, the politics of DC, the infrastructure of DC, the people living in and, or trying to make a living, uh, in DC. Um, and, and, you know, that, that is very much the broader context. You know, I started us off talking about the, 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 the profits, the headlines in the financial times or whatever, but you're exactly right. I mean, like, like it's not about trying to chase that. I mean, you'll never, you'll never catch it if you're trying to do scholarship, but it is about like, what are these larger questions that all this fits into? I mean, the profit thing is it, it's just beside the fact it doesn't really matter. I mean, we know that these companies are not actually really made to make profit in the first place. They are made to dominate uh, whatever it is that they, whatever space they are entering into, whatever market, whatever political space, infrastructure, whatever. Like they're not trying to make profit in a in a, a, a traditional sense. They are, um, you know, a crisis uh, monopolist, right? They see a crisis and they come in and they try to take it over. And I think. Your, the book sets up so well um, that one, I mean, that Uber is very, you know, this is this is platform urbanism, right? And it's not platforms just kind of operating in this, the, the spatial container of cities. It's understanding platforms as urban phenomenon, as things that are arising and reacting to the material conditions of cities specifically. Like the, the fact that these things operate in cities and do so much political operating as well as technological operating in cities is not beside the point it is the whole entire point um of of these these companies and i i think that uh i, I want to read a paragraph from the intro of the book because i think it really sets up what's happening here um in terms of some major themes while this is a, a case study of uber it is a case it is more about um, how we got to the point that we are with the state of urban politics, the kind of material conditions of urban life, um, and, and where that's heading now with companies like Uber. And so you write, 
Few with whom we spoke held up Uber as a real solution to DC's transportation, racial, economic, or employment challenges. Yet their expectations of the city and its democratic institutions were even lower. These people did not trust Uber to solve problems of racial polarization, stalled economic mobility, or concentrated poverty, but neither did they expect that such problems might be solved through public provision, urban public policy, or, dare we say, politics. This is the foundation of the book's argument, that Uber's success in D.C. and elsewhere hinges on exploiting a political and infrastructural vacuum, and in so doing, redefining what people expect from cities and the urban public realm. Uber's rise in D.C. was not simply a top-down imposition of its worldview on unsuspecting citizens. To see it as such fails to reckon with its popularity, or to give full consideration to the many people we met for whom Uber was important precisely because it made sense. And I think that's exact. Those two uh, themes, expectations and sense, or common sense, um, are... Uh, themes that go throughout the entire book and i think you are right that like that's how that like it does like you don't get a full analysis of uber unless you analyze it through the expectations like a real kind of bigotry of low expectations here right that we have low expectations of uber but we that, that's because we have even lower expectations of our city governments um but also of common sense which i think is you know, I, I think of the the kind of social theory work on neoliberalism by people like Wequant or Bordeaux who talk about neoliberalism as a form of common sense, right? It's a, it's this kind of ideological vulgate, they call it. This kind of, you know, th it's just a language that you have to understand what makes sense in the world. Um, and and that is very, that's obviously, you know, given us the urban conditions that we have for the last 50 years of neoliberal hollowing out of the cities, but also gives us Uber as a commonsensical and convenient um, option for, for those. So uh, could you, could you talk more about th those themes of expectation and common sense in your kind of urban political analysis of Uber? Well, I mean, that's what we wanted the book to be called, Jathan. I'll just put it out <laughs> right there. Assuming the press isn't listening, we titled this book Low Expectations. Let's be clear. But I think I think there was a I think <laughs> yeah. there was a worry that you know I think they had in their mind like a, a customer you know and saying you know seeing the book on the shelf and it says low expectations and they're like I don't have low expectations I'm not going to buy that book <laughs> <laughs> so we we ended up with you know kind of uh, the the title we, the, disrupting DC which I think you know has at least DC in in the title but um, yeah I mean to to your to your question, and Katie, help me out here. Um, I, I, you know, I think the part of what, part of why we, part of why common sense and expectations kind of form the the two pillars of the kind of books, um, you know, theoretical contribution is again based on based on talking to people, <laughs> um, based on you know talking to people for whom Uber is a common sense solution. But, but I think there's another, another piece of it, which, you know, that, that, um, that I think is, comes right after the, the selection you, you read, which is that, you know, common sense is something that is, you know, produced and, con you know, constructed and 
reproduced and constructed, um, you know, continually. So part of it is looking at what are the ways in which Uber is intervening to recreate that common sense. What, what are the ways in which Uber is attempting to, to mold people's expectations about what they can expect from urban life? And I think that probably comes like clearest, um, th- that's most clearly expressed also in the introduction where we, I don't know if you remember the quote from David Plouffe um, and the kind of basically David David Plouffe being like, hey, unlike the kind of subsidies that cities have to offer to real estate developers or or to people who want to build a factory so that they locate in their city as opposed to another city. With Uber, you know, all you have to do is let us operate, right? We realize that, you know, we, we realize that cities are politically constrained. We realize that, you know, local politicians, you know, in this globalized age struggle, you know, to, to encourage growth in cities. It's just common sense, you know. Uber is it's just common sense. Just let us operate. We don't we don't need subsidies. We just need to use public streets and we can offer jobs to people and we can offer, you know, fill in the, you know, transportation gaps that exist in your city. And and voila. And so part of it is just kind of understanding that context and and taking it, you know, taking it seriously. I mean, obviously, DC is a subject because you know you both are there and doing re- and you can do your research there. But it's also you know as 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 I'm reading through it, like sits as a really great example of a lot of the strategies that these companies use that regulate the, a lot of the traps that regulators may fall for, as well as visions that they might have. They think they can incorporate Uber into some sort of solution for the city or for this urban question that pops up over and over again, um, as well as um, other issues like demographics and, you know, trying to service or target predominantly black and brown neighborhoods or workers or workforces, um, as well as, you know, getting involved in the politics to try to steer the ship when it comes to who's going to get labor protections, who's what type of work, or, you know, or conditions are they going to subject them to? What type of you know uh, regulations will prevent them from getting into X, Y business or industry? I'd be curious what you think about the role that DC in of itself has played in the development of Uber and these app-based labor platforms. And if you think that this, you know, and, and if you could talk about what, you know, ways that might be distinct from, I think most people might, of course, identify it with like the cities that it's the largest in, right? It, with New York or London or Sao Paulo, it's like these are the cities where these are the largest markets. This is where Uber is really charging ahead and might overlook a city where, you know, like in DC, where it really is in, kind of innovating and experimenting with and developing a lot of. Uh, strategies, ideas, narratives that find use and expression elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, that was a question we struggled with about was DC important to these companies? And and if so, how and why? And we kept going back and forth, actually, I think for many years, and that's the advantage of a longitudinal, longitudinal project, right, is you can wrestle with yourself and give patience to those ideas. Um, 
And so, you know, I think on a surface level and some in the US anyway, DC is unique because it doesn't have a state that these companies have to worry about that if it goes and let's say, think about Texas, right? Austin, if it adds fingerprinting, you know, they can, the companies can go to the state and get that overridden, they can override it um, where they don't have to deal with those two levels. Um, there's also something symbolic about DC. And what's so interesting about this, like sort of these urban solutions is because Congress historically has always been anti-urban, right? And in many ways still is. And so there's something very funny, right? And very, fa I, I want to say it leans fascist, right? These anti-urban companies coming in, offering up a quote urban solution, right? But one that undermines the ability of cities to actually govern in the end. And so there's something like a, um, maybe I'm mixing um, metaphors here, but like a Trojan horsey thing. There's something very beautiful or swift about the way they like, you know, like change a landscape in which these congressmen and congresswomen exist, right? And then suddenly the world looks differently to them about what cities mean or need, right? And it's a place, cities are something Congress historically doesn't want to fund. And I think there's some, you know, in terms of the particularities of DC, you know, the, it, as we talk about in each of the chapters, you know, there is, there's a, you know, that DC has its own racial, uh, you know, history and racial, you know, questions. Um, it has its own kind of um, taxi industry and in DC is unique in particular ways, which, you know, also matter in, in our story. Um, and then questions around, I mean, in some cases, you know, DC is like every other city, and in other cases, it's it's you know, uh, it's unique. So you know, and that's the challenge with any case study is uh, you know you gotta kind of balance that and kind of acknowledge that and and you know kind of look at the Uber uh, Uber in DC allows us to talk about you know DC, but it also allows us to talk about these other cities. So. Yeah, I think the particularity. I mean, I don't live in DC, to, just to, uh, as as a correction. But you know, I think there's a way to you know. Part of what we are saying is that DC allows us to talk about um, you know how Uber has shaped and intervened in in urban politics more generally. I hope we accomplish that. You know, I don't know that there's anything that different from, you know, if you think about Palo Alto, right, and you guys had Malcolm Harris on, you know, you think about some of these stories, and I struggle, like, is is that a story that could be told from some other place? And I really do think, I don't know, Kafui, if you'll agree, I think this story about urban development and, you know, the promise of technology and what it does, you know, could be told from somewhere else, where the story would look differently, Right. But many of the same forces that are running through it would be evident from, you know, I'm from Northeast Ohio, like this story of what, how it looks in Cleveland could be very, very different. You know, it might, some things might be fainter, but would those forces still be evident? I, right. Would you think they would, Kafwe? Yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> And I think that's part of the whole point, though, as well, right? That like you know, DC is the the test bed. You know, it's the it's the the place to kind of experiment with things, your strategies, playbooks, as you put it, as you put it in the book, um, to roll out other places, right? Because I mean, on one hand, it's all the reasons that you mentioned around like it being a federal district, so you don't have a state government to contend with. Um, it's a strong mayor uh, situation, so you. You know, as long as you can get like the mayor on board, you can get a lot of things going on there. Uh, and, and it's been, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, 
it's a city as well that is very self-consciously trying to do these very entrepreneurial policies um, around attracting young and hip and creative class labor and be, but also wrestling with the idea that the metro um, sucks uh, more than most public transportation systems do, I feel like. Um, and, uh, and so it's like, there's all like the metro is literally on fire. So it's like, you know, we could either put out that fire or we have this uh, company that's coming in and saying, uh, just let it burn and we'll, um, you know, we'll operate on its skeleton, you know, on its on its burnt husk. <laughs> and in fact, if you let it burn, that kind of clears the way for us uh, in, in important ways. And, and so like, but it's also the fact that like, you know, neoliberalism as this common sense, these kinds of low expectations that we have of what government can do for us is not a DC story. That is just a society story. That is just a, an everywhere story, right? Um, but again, these things, you know, uh, you know, as, as, geographers you both are you know fully uh as well emphasizing that these things are very spatial and they're place based right you have you if you're going to roll out things like uberx or uh you know robotic you know sidewalk delivery robots or or whatever it is right you have to you have to trial them somewhere first you know you can't kind of roll it out everywhere at the same exact time kind of on mass um and so cities like dc kind of set themselves up as welcome and willing participants um in that like build this build this the urban future in our urban backyard and so it becomes a way of like marketing um as well for for dc uh and and so you know while you're right like this book could be a case study about anywhere um it's also i think important that it is a case study about dc because dc has such un unique material uh and social and cultural conditions that kind of um allow it to be this test bed this 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 place to experiment with these uh these bad urban futures, futures. <laughs> I think one thing we can do next is we can we can talk a little bit about you know the kind of go through some key parts of the of the book and we could start with you know the Uber's role in um the development of the taxi industry in the in the most recent years in the past decade. Um you know I would love you know if which wherever you think makes sense to start whether it's like in the sort of immediacy you know with Uber's entry into uh dc and uh, debacle over whether it was allowed to legally operate or further back and kind of talking about what were the problems with the taxi industry in the first place that allowed uber to come in but i think you know you know as to your point about how you know every city is in one way or another kind of similar right like you know like in a, in a lot of these cities where uber you know kind of dove in uh there were existing taxi commissions or there you know and if there wasn't then it, this was an opportunity and if there was there was still an opportunity because taxis had this kind of conception of corruption of inefficiency um and were also in one way or another 
provisioned by the city or by the state. And so you could come in and say like private sector solution to, you know, a problem that the public sector is kind of foisting on us. So yeah, yeah, I would love to talk through about, you know, in, in DC, what's going on with the taxi industry that allows Uber to kind of step in and, and kind of open up the doors or begin prying open the doors actually um, to proliferation. Yeah. So um, I think DC's history is not that different from other places, but also Ed, you should, I don't know, what was, what were your memories? Do you have memories of the taxi industry when you were growing up? I mean, no, because, um, you know, I mainly to get around, I was was using buses, you know, using buses or walking ridiculous amounts or hitching rides with friends. (laughs) So yeah, that's, uh, that's mainly me. I really did not even use taxis until, um, the first time I went to New York, when I went to New York after I left home, um, in, when I was 18, so 2013, 2014, probably. No, yeah, 2014. Okay. And so by that time, right, Uber was already here. So just to give you a little bit of a backdrop, there's a wonderful um, oral history online available, I think, with um, New Virginia Majority's John Liss, L-I-S-S, for any listeners that want to check it out, um, who was a taxi organizer back in the day. But what's important to know is that the taxi industry had already been deregulated. And that's a project that we can tie nationally to the Koch brothers. Um, And so where the taxi industry in the D.C. area used to be historically a... Um, engine for social and economic mobility for African-American families. Um, By the 21st century, it had shifted into a niche occupation, mainly for um, Ethiopian and Eritrean immigrants. And it still provided some degree of stability and especially for um, associational like ties, relationships. There were strong relationships in that industry. But as a result of the city being still at that point, black majority, this is in 2000, and also being governed by a black majority, well, up until 1998, a black majority city council, there became some tough ties between the African-American city, right, and these African immigrants, right, which is what the taxi industry became seen as. About 25% of the taxi industry in the early 21st century were Ethiopian or Eritrean. Um, so you have this system where there is highly distributed, which means like it's not centralized like New York City. We had something like 116 taxi companies for 6,500 taxis. So it's like there's a lot of individual folks, which could be great, right, for social and economic mobility, but it's not great for coming together with a quick campaign against a new, you know, Silicon Valley beast. Um, and so, you know, they're independent contractors. There's a host of issues. Um, and so that was sort of the landscape in which Uber came in, which is, you know, for a lot of council people and policymakers at the time, they didn't see taxi jobs as something worth saving. It's it's really interesting because, you know, like you said, the Koch brothers touched off the deregulation. Um, my first uh, look at that history had been um, through Hubert you know, Haran's um, history. Yeah. <laughs> he had wrote, he wrote this history, but talking about like, you know, the massive advocacy network that they had set up to roll out the regulation experiments to create the, you know, the specter of big taxi uh, to um, starve the beast and then point to the growing inefficiencies as evidence of like, you know, inherent uh, inability to provide for the public such that, yeah, you know, like for me, I, 
not having ever really taken taxis until getting to New York, my sense of it also had been until I want to say 2015, 2016 had been like public provision that was just broken because of and incapable of meeting needs of the people, but still something that we should have for one reason or another. Right. Um, and, and them more or less having won that war, right. And, and, paved the terrain and, and narrowed people's imaginations where the question wasn't like, how do we revitalize taxis? But like, well, they don't have this app. Uh, um, and so one that suggests that they are less sleek and innovative than the Silicon Valley incumbent, but also we have the laws that we do have remaining on the books are for this like older, more cumbersome giant. So maybe also like that, like Google blogger suggested, the problem is not the company, it's the law, right? And we need to then start getting to work on the law. So I think maybe then next, I would be curious, like, you know, what are some, you know, do, do you see some of the legal interventions, the political interventions Uber makes here significant in, as like a sort of precursor to what's to come or are they more just like this is the standard playbook you have to do in a city that has a taxi commission you have to come in you have to change these laws you have to make these relationships and then you're ingratiated inside of the city well so i, I mean we start the we start the book with um what was called operation rolling thunder which oh my god can yeah, you believe that? that one <laughs> which, so so operation rolling thunder is in the this summer of 2012 um uber arrives kind of late 2011 but you know it starts you know you start seeing uber black cars operating you know in the like february january february of, of 2012 and they're they're operating illegally and it and um there's a a kind of uh, a sting operation an early attempt um by the taxi commission at the time which was um headed up by uh, Ron Litton. And so, you know, they, they are, they, they, uh, they're on the radar of the regulators. They are deemed illegal. Um, but things really heat up in, in, in the summer. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, going back to the earlier, uh, you know, history of taxis, there's been, there was a long effort before this at, you know, uh, what you call, would call taxi modernization, which is an attempt to just upgrade, <laughs> upgrade the whole taxi system so that, so that all taxis look alike, so that they have the same, you know, um, meter, yeah, uh, so that they, they're metering in the same way. Um, um, and so in the summer of 2012, the, the, the council, um, takes up this question of modernization and it takes up the, issue of uber right because it's this opportunity to be like what what you know there's this new entrant there's this new operator in the city and you know what should we we do about it and i think partly because of who's on the, the council and you know because th there was some vocal you know opposition to, to to uber and and linton who was at the head is yeah kind of old school um <laughs> old school regulator of like, they broke the law. So, you know, the, uh, so there is an effort, I, you know, to, um, part of the bill was to set a wage floor or a, um, a, a floor on fares, right? So that, you know, so Uber would, you know, be 
a little bit more than the kind of traditional cab or black fare, black car services in the city. Um, and, you know, Uber, obviously, this makes Uber less competitive. And so um, the, re the response is what I was describing for Operation Rolling Thunder, which involved, uh, tr you know, Travis Kalanick using social media to reach out to anyone who had taken an Uber ride in the last, you know, eight or nine months since they had started operating because they have their email addresses and encouraging them to um, reach out to their um, their uh, representative, local representative, to kind of to kill the to kill this effort, and uh, and it was a success. And you know, over the course of like I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was like <laughs> over the course of like five hours, you know, council received like fifty thousand emails from you know constituents, basically saying, you know, I what are you doing? I like Uber. Don't you know? Don't regulate it. And I, you know, we start there because we think it. I mean, Uber was ecstatic, <laughs> you know, that, you know, the, 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 it was the sense that they had kind of killed this kind of, yeah, they had won, you know, they had killed this, this early attempt at, at regulation precisely by using the, you know, the, the tools, um, that a technology company has, which is the contact information of everyone who, who has used it. And, you know, I think that it, um, you know, it was it was to to quote forget some tech person on Twitter uh, the dawn of a new politics and and that's kind of where you know where it began and then the, you know there's other you know going further there's during that year Travis Kalanick visits the the city and and screams at <laughs> screams at the council about any attempt to regulate you know so I think you know the the story of Uber in D.C. in many ways is is a you know, taxis and the taxi, the legacy institution, the taxis as a legacy institution are like a huge, a huge part of that story. And the perceptions of that, of that, of, of taxis in DC by, by elected officials, by, um, by riders as well. Yeah. So Operation Rolling Thunder <laughs> is a key, uh, key, uh, key part of the story. Yeah, and I want to I want to I want to continue on that as well because you you know, you have a chapter in the book called Uber Kinte, right? And it, and it really focuses on these the racial politics of Uber and that these are not the a kind of like epiphenomenon, right? That like, you know, well, we're critical social scientists, so of course we're going to say, you know, what are the 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 racial and gender politics of of this platform? It's like, no, like race was always very central to the story of Uber and Uber as a solution for racism was always very central to the the kind of the early rise and defenders of Uber you know the some some people might remember the um <laughs> really ridiculous billboards that they had in 2020 around the you know the proposition 22 campaign they were doing in California um, that were just you know these black billboards with big white 
you know, sans serif lettering that says, if you tolerate racism, delete Uber, you know, <laughs> and, and it, it seems like, like those billboards, I mean, they, they, you know, were ridiculous and people made fun of them and so on for good reason. Um, and they, but they, they seem like they just came out of nowhere. Like that's a, like, that's a really w weird and weird thing to, to kind of turn the whole hashtag delete Uber campaign around and be like, actually you're or a racist, you know, if you know, if you delete Uber or whatever, but it didn't come out of nowhere. You write in the in your in the chapter book, you you trace this history that like ten years earlier, the the the, the race question for Uber was the subject of op-eds in the Washington Post and the New York Times. It was you know people were it was one of the first real big points that people in the media and in policy dis, uh, discussions were wrestling with their support of Uber or advocating for, hey, you've got this new upstart company and it solves the quote-unquote hailing while black problem, which is a real actual problem, you know, and I think it points to something that you uh, you know, the, the kind of themes of expectations, right, where it's like, um, you know, it's not as if uh, Uber is uh, disrupting a, 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 a fantastic system. You know, it's like on one hand, it's like they are coming in and seeing a system that is full of cracks, uh, is on fire, is, on, you know, in the midst of constant rolling crisis, um, has all of these real actual problems, um, and they are presenting themselves as a solution to those problems. And in some ways, um, they were a solution to those problems and, you know, in, in the most minimal way possible, but nonetheless, um, they were better uh, for people's actual experience of transportation or trying to have access to services like, you know, taxis and so on. So uh, could you talk more about the kind of race politics of Uber and how that has played into the development of uber responses to uber and so on so i you know i think the this there's, there's two there's two stories in in the chap in the uber uber kente chapter i think there's the, the story of kind of racial transition in dc generally that is the anxieties questions debates over um you know basically the uh, the racial transformation of the city from a from a from a predominantly a, mi a majority black city to to uh, to a non majority black city, um, and you know that being just a question hanging or a, a, uh, an issue hanging in the air and kind of um, permeating any other and all debates in D.C. Whether it's around you know, education, public space, real estate, but Uber, but transportation is in there as, as well. And I think the second story is that what, what you were just saying, which is the um, the problem of hailing while black, that is the ability to get a cab. And, and we, we, you know, we opened the story with an op-ed um, by, you know, this pollster um, who's talking about his experience as a black man trying to, you know, hail a cab in DC. But omitting the fact that you know <laughs> his research has, had been you know sponsored by sponsored by sponsored by Uber, and I, I think there's a there's a tension in the the, the 
the piece, which is, which I think is the tension that like exists across the whole book, which is, you know, the problems of, you know, hailing while black, the problems of, you know, racial inequity in DC are absolutely real. Like they're, and, you know, people, it's, these are people's experiences of racial discrimination are, you know, are real in DC. Um, you know, and at the same time, like Uber's kind of ability to um, take advantage of that, to intervene in that, um, you know, it, uh, you know, part of it is like, <laughs> I mean, we, we, we struggled because we, we were like, how do we, this is um, like, this seems like totally cynical, right? It's, this is like, <laughs> this is like a totally cynical play, you know, but, by Uber to kind of address this issue. For one, because, you know, in many ways they are displacing black workers in who are taxi drivers, <laughs> right? They, uh, they're lowering wages, you know, for working class black people in all these other realms. At the same time, they're serving, you know, in some cases, black consumers who want to get, you know, across town who have faced the challenge of, 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 of hailing a cab. And so, Part of it is just laying out that tension, sitting in it, <laughs> um, but also kind of pointing to all the ways in which a kind of broader vision of social justice and and um, we kind of point to the original um, uh, march on Washington for jobs and justice as a kind of model for a different kind of vision of of, of racial justice that seems that had higher expectations to go back to the. The, the theme that you were talking about. Um. You know, um, Marion Barry, right, four-time mayor, he had this lovely line during these debates. Like, he similarly lamented, when we tell the story at council, how he lamented the fact that he had a friend, let's say, visiting from Alabama, right? He was from the South. His friend was visiting from Alabama, and he wanted to get this friend home from his Southeast address to, let's say, somewhere in the Northwest or Northeast, and he could not get a cab to come. And so he was sort of lamenting this, being like, this is ridiculous. On the other hand, right, do we really think Uber is going to come in and do this, this unregulated entity? And I said, like, how do you, how does discrimination disappear without regulation? Right. And he was sort of like, what how isn't, and what I think he did so well, right, is he pointed to the role of the state to say there has to be, right, if we are going to address discrimination, which is a real problem, right, or equitable transit, there has to be some collective decision-making or something accountable to ensuring that that thing takes place. Yeah, and, and yeah, just investment uh, in public uh, transit just kind of uh, completely disappeared from the debate, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, so... I really hey, like let's not get question. ridiculous here, okay? <laughs> We're talking about realistic possibilities. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> but I liked really because that session emphasized right. He was like, "Look, like the ta I can't get a taxi. The solution to that would not to turn around and say let's further let's deregulate them. The solution would be more regulation. So how are we supposed to look at Uber coming in and be like no regulation whatsoever, right?" And I think that's also like in that chapter, you really hammer it out where it's like there are a bunch of key issues that came up that were sidestepped. The question of accessibility where Uber, basically all it has ever had to do is like at some point, someday, somehow say, 
it has a plan for making its fleet more wheelchair accessible and yet not not you know not actually moving forward with it or on the flip side of that also getting a lead into these into what regulators and lawmakers might do to hold it to account by by constantly doing freedom of information act requests to see who's talking to who who's sharing research who's who's deliberating who's who and what and where is there a threat that we will cut off that might be feeding or festering ideas that challenge our autonomy here? You know, and I, I, I think that has been one of the more frustrating themes I've seen with these sort of with this company in particular, but also the companies that have copied its playbook, right? Bemoaning how what. What needs to happen is a deregulation because that's the only way to let the innovation happen. And then preying onto the the ideas that people have about their cities, like you you know talking to council members or officials who are like, well, you know, this is a young city. We never had a business development strategy, and now we suddenly do, and we can, you know. But it's like, what are you talking about? But then also at the same time, this is still this is just regulation devolved now to the private sector, where they get to be the absolutist force in play that are setting the rules and setting the path of development and setting the infrastructure up on their terms in their interest with little to no um, accountability, transparency, insight, input at all. But maybe we're the naive ones, right? I mean, (laughs) Palo Alto, right? We look, did the railroad set their own railroad, their own laws? Yes. Did the mining companies? Yes. Did the internet companies? Did AOL? Did Microsoft? I mean, and look how well it worked out. Now they have multiple trillion dollar companies based out there, right? <laughs> I mean, are we the naive ones holding up this promise of urban development as something that's a collective endeavor? I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's also part, that's one of the things I like about, you know, Paula Anto, but also a book I feel immediately connected to it is Imperial San Francisco, where, you know, Gray Brechin is a San Francisco historian and he looks at the city and he's really inf- influenced by Lewis Mumford. And Mumford has this whole thesis where he's like, our city's worth it. Like, our, like this is like, we kind of just assume cities are inherently worth it because a lot of people live there. A lot of really beautiful, nice things come out of there in terms of sociality, in terms of cultural production, um, in terms of material standards, maybe. But like, what is the devastation that they wrought? both on the ecology or on the material world, but also to what kind of politics that we end up pursuing. And I feel in in Imperial San Francisco and Palo Alto, that question constantly comes out, right? And I feel that it also comes out when we do inquiries into Uber, like this one, right? Where the question is like, cities are something that allow people to live together and relate to people in ways they might not otherwise outside outside of the city sure but they also are increasingly becoming these vehicles and playgrounds for corporations you know in a way that is concerning right what then is becoming the city and what are we now being told is the city and is that project something worth continuing to pursue and invest in and build up Right. Or how do we how do how do we rescue the city, right? From from the people who I think have kind of like seized and closed off any possibility of an alternative development, which well, is inclusive <laughs> and equitable, right? Well it reminds so in the, the Uber Kente chapter, the there's this quote that we um, pull from a lobbyist that we interviewed that 
it's like it's um it's like he's channeling Lewis Mumford or Jane Jacobs about the good city. <laughs> he's like, what's unique about this tech company is that it's bringing people together, and it's very cool to see the old DC and the new DC bridging and people having interactions. I don't know if you've done any research on on this. He's talking to us, uh, but every time I get into a car um, or people get transported around, there's just this vibrant exchanges that are happening with total strangers. I mean, it's like. It's like Uber <laughs> Uber is understanding the kind of like deep alienation that some mm-hmm. people feel in cities and it's like but we got you just jump in an Uber <laughs> and you mm-hmm. can have these amazing interactions with other people and, and and so I think I think that's exactly right. They 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 messed up calling it the sharing economy. They they should have called it the caring economy, you know. <laughs> oh, they, I'm sure listen. You, if, if not for the pandemic or even honestly, and I'm sure maybe if the pandemic had gone differently, they would have rolled out something called Uber care and they, you know, as part of their efforts to try to privatize healthcare transportation, right. And healthcare workers. Cause they were trying to do, um, Uber go, I think it was the on-demand labor staffing project that fizzled out that they rolled out experimentally in Chicago and a few other cities. You know, I wouldn't put it past them. Or Amazon Care, you know, we remember remember that. That's <laughs> that right. New project. Yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm gonna put my stake down here. I'm coming out against cities. I don't think they were worth it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think cities were worth it. No. <laughs> no, but I think it is exactly right here as well. Where it's like the 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 question of like how do we reclaim the city? I think almost frames it in a in a poor way because it's like. We, to reclaim it means that you have to have had it in the first place. And and it's not clear that we had it in the first place, right? Like urbanization, I mean, we know this from, you know, the you know, historians and geographers of urbanization that, you know, cities in the way that we understand them today um, largely emerged as, you know, uh, in response to industrial capital and the needs of industrial capital um, to get people packed into, you know, small areas where they were, you had a, an, an easy reserve army of labor who could then go work in the factories. There's a way to create a working class as a proletariat rather than a kind of peasant class, right? Like, you know, and, and like a lot of this, this the way we understand urbanization um, in terms of like what a modern city looks like and how it operates and what it does and what its purpose is, is so enmeshed and linked and in service to capital um that it's like it's you know it 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 requires thinking about like it almost does it almost does require thinking about like these grand new ideas of what like a not an not only a non you know an anti-capitalist let alone like a non-capitalist city might look like right like i think it would look like a very different form of urbanization and so it, it but i think it also goes as well to um the the themes running throughout the book around urban politics and and uber's kind of you know, taking advantage of that, responding to it, politics responding to Uber and trying to take advantage of Uber and, you know, this relationship there um, that like, you know, again, it's it's not like the city is being completely reformed and restructured in ways it had never existed before by Uber. It's more that it's like a different way of doing 
capitalism of doing urban capital um, in the city, right? With a playing on a lot of the same, you know, playbooks uh, that are decades, if not hundreds of years old um, in, in this regard. We've been talking a lot at the kind of political sphere, um, you know, up, up, up higher levels of abstraction. I do want to bring it down um, to the to the ground a bit, especially going to the last chapter of the book and uh, all of the really great work you've done. Not only interviewing and researching the kind of policymakers or lobbyists or other decision makers um, in this area, but also having interviewed you know nearly 50 uber drivers and in some ca- in many cases having interviewed them multiple times over the course of years right so you know interviewing them in 2016 then again in 2019 then again in 2020 after the pandemic had kicked off right and so which is um you know, one, I mean, I think very unique in, ter- in this kind of research is to do multiple interviews over years with the same, with, with some of the same people um, to really get that difference of experience working on the app or whatever it might be. But I think those, uh, the, the chapter really building on the interviews, uh, the, you know, the, the, I guess the penultimate chapter, not the concluding chapter, but it's so, so ch- interesting research as well because it really really highlights everything we've been talking about here about these you know conflicting expectations um kind of you know common sense ideas of what cities can um do let alone what they should do and and uh, and who can do it for you or who can't do it for you um and as well i think really problematizing uh, troubling you know making more complicated in a in a good way um uber drivers uh actual experiences and relationships uh with uber the app and also their relationships or as the case is very often their non-relationships um or antagonistic relationships with other people uh on on the app i mean i i've you know, before reading this book, I've uh, you know read the article that you have in um, EPA Economy and Space, um, which is building on these interviews as well. And something I all I always think about uh, in these cases, I know I've I've brought it up and cited it many times in discussions, is that that one finding that you have from the interviews that the vast majority of Uber drivers had never even spoken to another Uber driver, right? That like there, there's not just a, a lack of solidarity. There is a complete like annihilation of um, social connection there, you know, and, and as well in the cases where people did talk about uh, other Uber drivers, you know, in the kind of abstract, uh, it was so often, you know, this kind of idea that, that they are inferior, right? That they are somehow pitiful um, for working on the app, but not me, 
not me. I'm not pitiful for working on the app because I'm better than they are, right? So uh, could you could you talk us through these uh, interviews you've done with the work uh, with the workers and this much more complex and complicated view of what it means to drive for Uber, or the kind of subjectivity of an Uber driver? Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. I mean, I, I will tell you, I didn't know what to do when we started hearing those comments. We had a lot of those first, that first year, 2016, when we did the first 40 interviews with these folks and we started to build relationships with them. I remember going through the transcriptions, right, and circling notes. And I remember we were at a library and we'd printed out these things and trying to make sense of it. And I actually, it was like, a, like me versus them was actually how I initially notated it. So I couldn't make sense. What was this thing we were hearing, right? And so in my head, there was like the Harry Campbell, just work smarter, right? Rideshare guy mantra. But this wasn't that, right? This was like an internalization of superiority, like that I wasn't dumb enough to do this stupid job, but I was, I, I'm smart enough to make it work and I feel pity. And I, at some point thought, well, maybe that pity is a kind of care. Maybe that is the care. I mean, maybe you care for your, you know, fellow drivers. Um, so we really struggled that me versus them became this smarter than me. You know, I'm smart enough to do it uh, mentality. And it was interesting. I mean, I will say the COVID going through this project and having relationships with these workers through COVID, it, it's, um, it created this, um, this closeness that I wouldn't have expected. Um, and I certainly don't know, and it's hard to imagine how the project would have changed had COVID not happened. Because an immediate shift to online research, right, as opposed to us meeting folks in person at Panera, at Starbucks, you know, at public libraries, getting to see people's homes from behind their screens, hearing their kids come in, right, running late, being frazzled. It was a different kind of um, interview process. Um, and I wasn't expecting that. Um, and so I, I think the reality that so many people, we didn't have as much attrition in the end. Um I, I think really is attributed to COVID and the way it shifted sort of our ideas about it's okay to just talk to someone on your computer um, or talk to someone from your phone in your car as you're doing it. Um, and I think the desperation also of that moment, you know, certainly I was doing calls with our local DSA chapter uh, was supporting some workers and trying to help them apply for pandemic unemployment assistance, right? It was a new ball game in which workers felt seen differently. So it was a one, I don't know, I'm still, I was texting with drivers this past week. So we're so excited about the book release and telling them about the book um, talks we're doing and um, sending them copies. So um, even the story has changed. Some of the people that, you know, we said weren't working, right, have now returned in different ways. Yeah, this reminds me of findings also, you know, that I had done when I was kind of doing some ethno ethnographic work on drivers who really took, internalized the entrepreneurial sense of things that, you know, they were going to be able to make this work. And I think also there was this essay I'd read from Vina that kind of talked about how drivers that did not want to be reclassified were, would explain and elaborate that they did not trust Uber as an employer, that even if they would like better safeties and guarantees, working conditions. This is not a company that 
would be honest with them or would be fair with them. And so, but, and, and what they did trust is their own ability to strategize and optimize, right? And that efforts to intervene at the level of the state or the level of company policy would only fail. And that also views, I view that that's a really interesting development that you note, that Vina notes have seen, that also feels to me like a big victory for these companies at the level of, um, you know, we, you know, this larger intervention into the experience of what it means to be in a city, breaking the idea that you should also be able to get support when things are hard. There should be some solidarity network, some social safety network, and not that you have to take it all upon yourself. And if you don't, that is a judge of lower character, of weakness, of a failure to rise up to some occasion that, that that somehow speaks badly of you and not of the fact that each level of this system is, you know, exploitative, extractive, porous, um, designed without you in mind. Yeah. I mean, Ed, absolutely. You know, one of the things we ask folks from the get-go is tell us about your employment history, right? And we hear worker after worker tell us about W-2 jobs that failed them, right? W-2 jobs in which they didn't control their schedule. They've been algorithmically managed for decades, right? They have already experienced that. So the idea of having a workplace in which they had the prospect of maybe controlling their schedule so they could go pick up their dad from dialysis or get their kid to school on time, right? To be honest, I think I would, if I had their life histories and their you know, limits and challenges, like, I don't know that I would do anything other than sign up to work for Uber, right? I think it's a mirror. The best thing I can tell people is it's a mirror of our labor market, right? It tells us so much about how our jobs have failed folks, right? And if um, Declan were here, our, our um, co-author, right, he had a beautiful line in a dissent essay years ago about this internalization of, you know, Uber's, you know, ethos, And he said, sort of, it's, you know, like folks don't try to improve this workplace. They don't expect much from it, right? It's sort of like they've been told this workplace is going to disappear. They believe they're only in it temporarily, right? And so why work to improve it? And he said, you know, it's sort of like, you know, why as a Titanic sinks, why would the engineers try to unionize? This place is blowing up and they're leaving. Yeah, and the, the internalize it, it reminds me of like the multi-level marketing <laughs> language of, you know, I feel like it, it's just a, I feel like it, it's very familiar to me. <laughs> um, I hear you. I was yeah. in one of those for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's America, the, I sold yeah, insurance. <laughs> yeah, Amway. I mean, it's, it's, it's a common, it's a common thing. Also what you talked about earlier, Coffee, about um, the March for Jobs and you know, jobs with justice and equality and, 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 and as part of a pursuit of economic justice. You know, sometimes in the discussions about, okay, like, what are we going to do in a larger sense about the gig economy? The conversations hit a wall because there's not going to, there's not a larger discussion about the fact that these jobs are, are, exist. Is like, you know, as you talked about, Katie, a lot of people have been subjected to the onerous labor conditions that we are concerned will get expanded elsewhere. And that's why they're in there in the first place. They're there because they're underemployed. They're there because they are looking for some respite and some support and they're not getting it. And there's, but, and, and these offer the, um, 
offer the illusion of maybe ha having it in the first place and then get tra and trap people in for one reason or another, or because the actual experience of it is distinct enough from other depressing, grueling jobs that they're going to stay in it and they're going to try to make it work, right? And I think a lot of people really underestimate how dehumanizing and undignified a lot of work in this country is and how like even when in some other element these jobs and the gig economies still persist like that there is a slight difference in how it might be experienced day to day um that would you know people might choose when presented with like a shit sandwich and a and a shit sandwich right you know like there, I, I, I think that you, you know, the like you talked about going through people's work employment histories, right? I remember talking with people who, um, when I when I did my my thesis on Uber and Lyft drivers, you know, a lot of the drivers talked about how even as horrible as the conditions and the pay might be for them, it was hard for them because they liked driving in ways that mattered to them more than or matter to them enough that it would be such a hard sacrifice to choose something else even if it meant the better thing right they loved talking to people they loved going through the city and they loved the bit of control that they might be able to have even if it was being eroded over themselves that they didn't have in other jobs and that they tried to you know get out and seek in other jobs and weren't able to find right you know i think i think you know, a lot about how like some of the drivers I know who did it the longest were people who just like truly loved to talk to people and could not imagine work where they would not be able to have conversations with people, connect with people, even if that's the only time they're going to see them. Right. And that, that you don't, you don't get that in a lot of work, um, in one way or another. And that is not to say that the, and, and, and I think sometimes, in the discussions of the labor conditions that may not be talked about as much because there might be a sense that it un it pushes against or undermines the thing. But I think it ex exemplifies and expands how complex it is and how nuanced it is as you've been getting at in this whole book, right? That part of the reason why this is such, such a hard not to, to tackle is not just because of all the forces that are converging on it politically and materially and economically, right? But they're also on the individual level. You know, people have to make really complex moves on uneven terrain with limited information other than like their own past experiences in a really shitty labor market. Um, and, 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 and choices that they're making also in a terrain that's being shaped by forces that are much larger than them. Speaking of the subjective and personal reasons, I mean, the, I just remember we interviewed a guy multiple times that that was clear. He just wanted to like get, out of his house and like away from his wife for like a couple hours a day. And like, like he was like, clearly just, you needed an excuse. I'm making money. I'm working. I just need to get out of the house. So it's just like, you know, once you look at the, all the different levels, I mean, there's the kind of that level of the labor market, but then there's all sorts of personal reasons that people are doing. It's just like, um, yeah, I need extra cash or I just, I can't be in my house another minute with this person. <laughs> But, but it's also honorable, right? Yeah. And I think that's what we struggled with during this. Like, it is honorable to help someone get somewhere, right? Like, there's nothing inherently wrong. I mean, okay, fine. The world is on fire, a, a <laughs> gas-powered vehicle taking you, like, two blocks. There is something wrong with that. But, like, I'm thinking I have an elderly, you know, nearly deaf neighbor, right? Arthritic, no children, no spouse, 
okay. I'm like, I am very happy that something exists that would be able to help care for him, take him to a doctor's office, right? I don't want to do that work. I am thrilled, right? Do I wish the market weren't the vehicle through which he got the vehicle? Yes, right? And I think that's when, you know, I, I can both hold the idea that it is honorable work and also seek for alternatives, right? And look at the countries in which there are chauffeured services for people who need it, right? That are allocated differently, that are not exploitative, that are provided by the state where there's some kind of oversight to make sure that social services, you know, are involved in this person's life. Um, and that is where, you know, I, I, I do think of the people that do this work, right? Because it, there is a semblance, like we are all striving to hold on to something meaningful, right? And I, I'm, I believe, right? I don't know. I was talking um, earlier today with a group um, called Ace Collective, right, in Northern Virginia, and they are working on organizing Bangladeshi Uber drivers. Um, and they're starting to figure it out, right? And the way they met these folks was because they were doing tenant organizing because they were talking to folks about their rent conditions. And when we talk to them about that, right, well, what jobs do they have? Well, these are their jobs and they're fighting against deactivation and pay transparency, basic things. Um, but it is, they're not arguing to get rid of this job, right? They're not even arguing to get rid of the gig economy, right? But they're fighting slowly toward imagining better futures. And I guess that's what we hope the book will do is help people ask, like, what role does Uber play in our lives? And are there other things that could, you know, fill that role or make Uber obsolete? No, I, I think that's ex that's exactly right, and and you know to end uh, to to end by uh, you know zooming out a bit. This is also not just an Uber story. You know, similarly as your book is not just an Uber story. It's a DC story. It's an urban politics story. It's a democratic institution story. I mean, this is also not an Uber story as well. This is, as, as you said, Katie, this is a reflection of the economy. This is a uh, material conditions of life story. Um, you know, cause I, I am reading the, the chapter with interviews with the Uber drivers, seeing this really complex and complicated view that they have on the platform on um each you know other drivers but also in you know the the kind of relativity here as well right that like you know yeah this is a, a terrible job and yes i got sexually assaulted or and i got deactivated or my tips were you know my pay is tra not transparent you know all these horrible yes all these horrible things happen to me but it's the best job i've had and i would i would go back to work <laughs> for the uh for uber um if if the option was a, a, a rose for me you know wait and, and it did i actually spoke with that worker this that's week so bleak jeez oh i'm sorry God. i know <laughs> <laughs> and but that's not an Uber story either, because you know, in talking, so in work that uh, I haven't that I haven't published yet, but I've I've done some research with some colleagues in Melbourne where we were interviewing. One, it started off again as an Amazon project. Let's go, let's interview people who are working at Amazon warehouses in in Australia, because Australia is a new market for Amazon too. So they're they're still very much kind of building. They're trying to get a foothold. So we're like let's. Uh, and 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 so let's talk to some um, workers and and of course 
you know, in terms of who we could actually get access to, uh, we ended up talking and expanding it more to being a, an e-commerce warehouse and logistics project. So it's like, let's actually just talk to a lot of people working in e-commerce warehouses. Um, and some of them will be Uber, some of them will not be, but some of them, as is the case, have worked across multiple warehouses, um, often because they're working for temp uh, you know, positions where they're, you know, they're being said, here's the place you're working this week, go, you're working for Amazon, or next week, you're working for Lululemon, or whatever it might be, right? So you have experience. But in talking to people, we were coming across a lot of the same exact kind of stuff, where it was like, this is the best job I've ever had, you know, especially talking to immigrants who are coming here and, and have, you know, have a long labor history of working in India or Bangladesh or Pakistan. Um, and then they come to Australia and they have a labor history of working in different uh, kind of, you know, blue collar jobs that they can get in Australia. Um, and, you know, this, you know, working for Amazon's the best job I've ever had. It's great. You know, they, they, they really appreciate having the job and, and they like it. And it's like, yes, you know, then they go on and explain some truly horrible and terrible things that are involved in doing that job, but it does not negate the fact that it is still the best job that they've, that they've had, um, in a really tough economy, a tight labor market, um, working across multiple different markets and regimes, labor regimes in different countries. Um, and so I think it as well is it, it requires us to as good critical researchers who actually care about analyzing and improving the material conditions of workers i think it call, it makes us have to walk this line of like we have to at the same time under like trust trust the workers like believe that they what they say when they tell you um all these horrible things have happened to me and i'm so thankful i've got the job you know or it's the best job i've ever had um and and you know believe that while also uh understanding that they are not like succumbing to false consciousness or something like that right they're like well you look, hold on you just don't understand how bad it actually is let me tell you how bad amazon or uber whoever actually is um it, it's it's understanding it's like no like the, like it's all relative all exploitation is relative um, in this way, and it's a reflection. It's a whole. It's a whole economy story, not an Uber story, not an Amazon story. Like they play into it. They are powerful, so they also create the conditions that they are playing into in a lot of ways. Um, and yet, like it's still. It, I think. I think you do a really great job in the in the chapter and the work of walking what is a really difficult line as critical researchers where all you want is the re the, the the people you talk to to be like this place fucking sucks i hate it i'm gonna let how do i burn it down you know <laughs> and then when you go in with those expectations that that's what they're going to tell you um especially because you also read a lot of people saying that in news reports and in journalism and stuff like that in large part because you don't hear the other stories in journalism unless it's journalism with some with the opposite uh, intention, right? Um, where it's going, the intention is to say that actually this is not bad; it's really, really good, right? Um, but I think like it, 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 it's a uh, 
it requires this like t- this really hard line i think for researchers who go in expecting to hear those stories instead they hear a, a much more complicated and complex view of like what it is on the ground for an uber driver or an amazon driver glad that came across <laughs> <laughs> thank you it is such a pleasure to yeah. hear you like engage with it i can't tell you yeah. it's so fun to hear Jathan, you and Ed and Jeremy to have read the book. I, it's, I don't know. We didn't it's get to amazing talk about feeling. so much of it, though. We didn't get to talk about <laughs> just in place labor. We didn't get to talk about the data. Did practices. you buy the argument? Do you Ed, like? I just want to know what arguments did you buy or not buy? Not <laughs> I mean, I'm so curious. Like you are. I mean, you're like the dream readers. Like I'm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we get. We don't we get to play. Okay. Maybe we can have you on and talk more about it again, part two. <laughs> yeah. But I, or just talk about it ourselves. You know. <laughs> without the uh, recording equipment. Yeah, too. we all doing on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I buy the argument for sure. Me too. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think the yeah the just in place labor article is 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 also really good. That's not even in the book. That's that's right. Like that's not really in the book. Um, but that is also a big part of it as well. The kind of Toyotaism uh, of 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 Uber. But no, I mean, I th- it's a great book. It's a fantastic book. I think ending it. I was also I was a little conflicted when I was reading because all the like the chapter about the uh, that we were just talking about with the interviews with the workers comes at the very end of the book, and I was like, this should be like the scene setting. This should be at the at the beginning of the book, not like coming to the end of the book. Um, but I think it also does, you know, it, it's more like where, what's, what's the, the position of the triangle, you know, are you zooming out and then, you know, and then coming like zooming into the finer point or are you starting at the, at the, at the, at the ground level and then zooming out? I think, you know, there's, there's benefits to both, but I think ending the book on, uh, talking about like the act the workers experiences and the very complex and complicated views that people have to this platform that they that they work on or work for um is you know it, it's a great way to end the book by by saying that like these things are despite the this the kind of the very simple silver bullet narrative of the technology um, all of this stuff is messy and it's hard and it's a lot more complex and uh, and and it requires like not only do this are the solutions if we really want to address these structural and foundational problems there they require political solutions I think the the book almost ends with this kind of you know for researchers that if we want to understand it in a material way it also requires like grappling with the the really messy complex uh you know tangled aspects of like you know having that 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 real real sober analysis of material conditions you know so i think it's a really great way to 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 end the book to wrap up it's a fantastic piece of work um katie kafoy thank you so much for for coming on and and talking with us about it Thank you. This was absolutely, this was great. This is amazing. <laughs> I'm really glad. Uh, we will, of course, have a link. It's out 
uh, uh, very soon um, from Princeton University Press, middle of August. So I think a few days after we release this episode, um, we'll have a link to it there. Uh, we'll we'll put a link to your your X accounts <laughs> so people can follow you there. Um, is there is there anything else you would like to direct people's attention to um, as we wrap up? No, but nope. I just want to say thank you to you guys. I've so enjoyed, especially during the pandemic, TMK, it was like this lovely company on walks. <laughs> and I'm really grateful that you guys have pursued this conversation and kept it going. And that means a lot to like, it's it's actually kind of wild to be on it, but ooh. Yes, you, this is a the dream, dream interlocutors. Well, um, thank you. So oh, thank you. That's very, very kind. And you two were fantastic guests. So thank Uh you for for coming on. Um, And everybody else um, can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. So if you want more of this and you need more uh every week well you can find you can find it there um so subscribe at patreon uh and until next time later adios Yo, 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 yo,